Good morning, everybody. I am glad to be back here to see you all again. Look forward to having good fellowship with you today. I encourage you to take notes this morning. I discourage you from trying to write it all down. But um, good news is both my new book that just came out first this month, it's actually a book I wrote 15 years ago that we've rewritten, and a new publisher, it's a hardback edition on spiritual warfare, it's out there, and also a brand new DVD that we just finished the editing in this, uh, this last week, it was professionally finished, so I'm um, grateful for all that, that we have the tools and so on, but I do want you to take notes, you know, the guy who takes notes will remember more, I mean, that's uh, something they understand clinically, that if you jot down the scriptures or jot down some of the main points, and there will be seven points in the message this morning that that um, I think will will help you. A couple of them we're just going to breeze through, a couple of them I'll give a little more, um, you know, illumination to, but uh, first, maybe a little introduction that you, uh, if you don't remember who I am, or maybe you've never heard me speak before, this is our 34th year of uh, full-time apologetics and, and discernment ministry. Uh, I've traveled more than 200 days each of those years across the U.S. and Canada, and now actually in other parts of the world as well, and uh, presented these seminars. I am trying to travel a little less these days, only for the fact that... Uh, I'm involved with Jan Markell's radio program, and that takes time. In fact, there are several full-time employees just for that one-hour radio program that's produced that uh, is heard each weekend across the country. Uh, that's the, um, the time that we spend in it to make sure that the, uh, those minutes are used absolutely the way the Lord wants them and to the fullest extent. And I'm also involved in, uh, in just beginning, kind of jetting out into this, this Internet TV ministry that we have we've invested in over the last year. So I'm excited about all of that, but it means I'm going to travel a little less. My wife likes that idea, and uh, I think probably my, my grandkids do too. Who knows? Well, you know, it's hard to read them sometimes, isn't it? Especially when they get to be 21 and, and uh, 22, as a couple of them are now. But uh, we're all out in the Seattle area. Uh, we lived in Texas for many years. I think the first time I was here, I was actually still living in Texas. But uh, we live out in the, in the Seattle area. Somebody said, so you live in Seattle? And I said, no, I'd never want to live inside the city of Seattle. I don't want to live there uh, for numerous reasons. But uh, we, we live in the area anyway. I live closer to Mount Rainier, which I think is a good idea, most beautiful mountain in the world for sure. Uh, if you want to know more about us, and certainly uh, 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 our website is a great place to do that, ericbarger.com. Uh, lots of resources and materials there. It's all free of charge unless you wanted to purchase a product out of the bookstore. But uh, lots of podcasts are there, lots of newsletters, articles. We tried to um, package it in such a way it's easy to navigate around and get the different material. But uh, what I do in ministry is, is apologetics and prophecy and current events. Those are the things we deal with. So when I talk about spiritual warfare, it's a, it's a little diversion uh, from those things. And that is what I'm going to speak about this morning. Uh, from uh, from that brand new book, but a lot of this material is out there, including all of our booklets and so on, and they're easily downloadable, my testimony. Uh, you can watch it, listen to it, or download it, or, or of course read it online as well. You can find me on Facebook. I'm a little bit on Twitter as well. I'm a lot more on YouTube and Vimeo and some of the uh, video uh, spots on the internet, but if you go there, you'll you'll be able to get a lot of the material and information. We do a free printed newsletter. We're going to try to do it four times this year and have a new one coming out in February, and we do an email update that is different than the newsletter, and I try to produce that uh, as often as I can when I'm home, depending on how the schedule goes. But I mentioned Jan Markell. We're on over 800 stations now every weekend. 
Uh, it's a great responsibility knowing how many people we're, we're speaking to. We had uh, nearly 2 million uh, podcasts at one of the podcast services that we uh, are, are um, where our, the ministry, the radio ministry is uh, podcasted from. Almost 2 million just from one of those services last year. So we're, we are trying to uh, get the word out there and God is blessing it. We appreciate what he's doing in it. Uh, I did bring some of my materials. Uh, a couple of my boxes are still floating around, thanks to USPS. They're probably in a you know, postal outlet in Kansas City someplace or something like that. So some of the stuff didn't come, but I, we, I, we put out everything that we did have or uh, did uh, receive out there on the table, and I'll be out there in between the services and be able to talk to you and greet you and so on at that point. But uh, any of the DVDs out there, and there are lots of different topics on the occult and on, of course, spiritual warfare and on the cults and on apologetics, uh, itself, all of those things are out there. Uh, any four is fifty dollars. Any ten is ninety nine. And if you want to buy one of everything that has my name on it out there, and I'll check and make sure that indeed you're getting everything because we're uh, we're going to be out of stuff pretty quick, I think. Then that's a, a package price of two thirty nine. We appreciate your support of the ministry that way too. That's about half of our income uh, by the materials that we've produced through these years. We do appreciate it very much. All right, so we get into spiritual warfare. And I realize that a lot of people have different ideas about what that term means. People think it means different things. But I'm going to give you seven different uh, weapons that we can use in spiritual warfare uh, for ourselves in, in personal victory. Because if we're not living in such a way that we can, we can be um, um, uh, a help to other people, then uh, how can we ever fulfill what God has called us to do in this life? How can we ever be people who spread the gospel? And that's, that's really what we're called to do. That's why we are here. That's why we're breathing. I hope you're breathing, by the way. And I hope that, uh, that you understand the purpose and reason that God has you here at this point in time. So spiritual warfare itself could go a lot of different directions. It could be, maybe there could be 10 reasons or 15 or 20 or more, but uh, I'll give you seven this morning that you can apply and use in your daily life. The goal I have for you this morning is to give you a practical and a biblical plan for spiritual warfare. I think we need a plan before we uh, jet out into these things. I think often when we begin to pray, we don't, we don't have a plan when we start, and that's why after a couple of minutes we get sidetracked, and maybe, maybe you have a nap or something in the, in the process of it. People think that prayer is five minutes followed by a healthy ten-minute nap, and I don't think so. But we do need to have, I think, a plan. And that's what I'm going to give you as a framework this morning. This will not be an end-all of all end-alls about spiritual warfare. I want you also to understand that this is about personal victory. This is about our path, about the path that we should be on as Christians. And that's really what I want to impress upon you most this morning is about the victory that, that, we've, uh, that we've been afforded uh, through the cross and through what Jesus did. Now, these weapons have nothing to do with me other than my obedience to go ahead and operate with them and operate in uh, what the scripture says. It's all about obedience, obedience to him, obedience to his word, and of course, by the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't do this on our own. This isn't something that, uh, you know, we're spiritual giants all of a sudden, so we get puffed up in the process of it. Uh, this is all about just being obedient to his word and doing what his word says. I do have a secondary goal that I want to correct some of the misconceptions that I think people have about the term or phrase spiritual warfare. And uh, I'll be doing that as I go along so uh, you can take note uh, when we get to those particular spots. 
But if you're here this morning and you're tired of just existing and you believe that there's more, more victory in your, for your life, you believe that God has afforded you more, but somehow you're not living in it, maybe you're where I was. I would be watching some of the people who I believed were the, uh, the great leaders in my early Christian walk back in the 1980s, and I would, I'd be watching them and, and thinking, you know, it appears to me that they have a level of victory that I just don't know, that I'm not, I'm not living in. And uh, if you're one of those people that, that maybe your, your walk has stalled somehow and uh, th- things are just not like you know they should be, uh, you know that the time you once spent in God's word isn't where it is now. You know the time you once spent in prayer isn't what you're doing now. If you're in that place, then I think you've come to the right place this morning that uh, you can have uh, some of these tools and put these tools in place. And God may speak to you just about one or two of these things, not all seven of them, but he may deal with your heart, so take note of that as well. But if you're like me and you're just... Uh, you don't want to get into that place of being stalled. You want to continue on with him and do as he's called you to be or to, to do and to be. Then uh, if you're just tired of, of living in mediocrity in your Christian walk and you really want more, then it's time to say enough is enough and it's time to take a stand, which is obviously the name of our ministry as well. But it really works right here too, just to say it's time for you to take a stand. Now, about spiritual warfare, evangelicals, seem to be confused about what it means, probably because we've seen or heard so many things through the years. There are books out there that you would, if you read them, you would think spiritual warfare um, is all about demon chasing. And I, I guarantee you, this is not about chasing demons around in the parking lot and, and uh, calling everything demonic that, uh, that happens around us. You know, when the, when the Garden of Eden took place, when the, the event there where mankind fell, uh, from that point on, it doesn't take a whole lot to keep the ball rolling for Satan. And he doesn't have to get personally involved and intertwined with all of the evil affairs around us because uh, we live in a fallen world, we live in, a, in fallen created bodies. And, and, um, and so with that, you know, he just, he just keeps, uh, keeps things going just by, by the, the, the nature of things. But uh, evangelicals seem to be confused about it, and I believe if we're confused about an arena that's talked about in the Bible, what we end up doing is just not ever exploring into it. Most of us just kind of bypass it and don't explore to find out what the truth is, what the biblical truth is about these things. Now, there are folks in the charismatic Christian world um, who they do call, most of them would call every bad thing that happens a demon. If you cough, they want to cast it out of you. Uh, there's a lot of excesses that need to be taken care of, and we need to get our thinking right about this. And, of course, there are people who would claim to be Christians but uh, do not believe the gospel, don't believe the Bible. Uh, they would be the liberals who would uh, believe that if you're just a good person, you're going to make it to heaven, and that uh, God grades somehow on a curve rather than with the truth of his word. If you mention spiritual warfare to them, they want to go outside to see what your spaceship looks like because they think you just landed from some other planet. And I've had experience with all of these people at different times. And being an evangelical, I've, I've kind of uh, been able to deal with this and be able to tell people there's more to this than you think. And you may have been taught things, but they may not have been the right things. Let's get back to what scripture says about this. I don't think you're going to find the actual phrase spiritual warfare in the Bible, maybe in some version, but uh, you're not going to find it, I don't think, in the King James, that's for sure. But you will find the teaching of spiritual warfare throughout the Bible. 
one thing that I think comes out first is that I've got to convince people, and, and it's, it's pretty tragic that in this hour, uh, with people who have taught about this for so long, that we live in a church age who uh, you know, wants to have their ears tickled, they want to um, hear feel-good messages, they want the happy-go-lucky gospel. And when you start talking about warfare, well, that's terminology they don't want to think about. And now we're in an age where we have to convince people that they're in a war. But you are in a spiritual war. Every one of you here and everybody outside the doors of this room is in a spiritual conflict, whether they know it or not, or whether they like it or not, that's not, uh, that's not the, the question here. They are in a war, and you're going to be in a war as long as you have life in your body, as long as you live here. And there's just a couple of scriptures there, and there's several I could have used, but uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and Romans chapter 1 would indicate to us that we are going to be in a lifelong spiritual conflict. So I know there are a lot of definitions that people could give to the phrase or term spiritual warfare, let me give to you what I'm, where I'm going to go with this. And uh, I, I believe mine's valid. And I believe there are other definitions that are probably valid too uh, besides this. I believe that 10%, it could be 15 or it could be 20, but let's say for the sake of argument, 10%, and that's what I, I wrote in the book, that 10% of spiritual warfare is directly dealing with the demonic realm. In other words, it's a direct confrontation with the demonic, 10%. So that's a pretty low number. So what is the 90%? Well, 90% is you and I deciding, making a decision that we're going to live in the victory that God won for us through Jesus Christ at the cross, that we're going to understand it, that we're going to implement it, and we're going to live in it. And we're going to be able to express it to other people. Uh, like I said a few minutes ago, if you're not prepared, if you don't know the authority that you have in Jesus Christ, if you don't know what God has said of you and what God has given you as a member of the family of God, then you're not going to be able to help some poor person who is demonized, who might need that, that kind of specialized help in deliverance. You're not going to be able to help them. I think it's healthy to understand where the war is not because uh, the, since the, the world hears us speaking of something about warfare, well, they, they, they immediately think it's, it's a, a battle fought on a, a battlefield with guns and tanks and knives and bullets and, and so on. And that's not what this is all about because this war is not against flesh and blood. This isn't a war that we're going to fight uh, with, with humans. Uh, my problem isn't necessarily with any humans. It's with powers and principalities and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in heavenly realms. So you've got to understand where the war is, is and where the war is not. And you heard Ephesians 6, uh, the passage, the whole passage read, read a few minutes ago. So, but Ephesians 6.12, I believe, tells us where that battle is. You need to contend and resist and be ready. And by the way, if you, if you doubt that we're in a spiritual war, then I want you to look at just these three passages with me. Jude verse 3 says we're, we're to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, if there's not some sort of an assault upon that faith, why would we have to contend for it? And, and so that's an immediate question you have when you look at that passage in Jude 3. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I learned a long time ago that if you read scripture in the converse or opposite meaning, sometimes it'll just come to life for you. And this is one of those places. 
Because if, if you read this in the converse meeting, then it would say, if you don't resist the devil, he will not flee from you. See, if, if we're not in, in an active resistance, he's going to continue to do exactly what he wants to do uh, around us. He may not be able to take our lives, and he not be, may be able to, to possess us. He may not be able to do those things. But he wants to keep us from being the witnesses for God and the people of God in this time period when it's, it's really up to us to continue to, to bring forward the, the, uh, the values of the church and what the church stood for and the doctrines of the church and so on. It's really up to us. So we need to contend, contend for the faith and continually be in a, 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 an attitude of resistance. First Peter 5 eight says, be ready, be sober, be vigilant, be on guard. Why? Well, Peter says, because the devil, like a roaring lion, seeketh whom he may devour. He's not a roaring lion. He's like a roaring lion, and he's looking for those he may devour. That means he's looking for those who probably don't understand what his principles are, what his precepts are, what his weapons are. Paul says we're never to be ignorant of the devil's schemes. Look, we don't want to be in a position where we're focusing on Satan. That's not what this is all about. We focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? That's the first and foremost. But I believe if we're, if we're in a battle, in a war, then we need to understand how the enemy operates. What general in his right mind would send his soldiers into battle without training them how the enemy would attack and counterattack and what, what kind of uh, weaponry the enemy is using? Uh, that, that would never have happened uh, with General Eisenhower or General MacArthur or any of the great generals of the past. And so we need to be people who understand and have a, an understanding, at least a working knowledge of how Satan is going to operate. He loves to work in our ignorance, that's for sure. And uh, we, we don't want to be people who are ignorant, especially of God's word and, of course, of how Satan may operate as well. If you don't think that spiritual warfare is a real, um, genuine thing that we are to understand in our day, if you don't think that the demonic itself is, a, is something we should understand, then you just need to take a razor blade when you get home and take the book of Mark and cut, well, cut most of the book of Mark right out of your Bible because it's really dealing with spiritual warfare. And it's Jesus de- dealing with this and doing it by example. A primary and overriding emphasis, as it says here, in Mark's gospel is the defeat of Satan and of demonic powers. We are instructed to tie up the strongman. That that means that you're doing battle, you're doing warfare. And the outcome of this battle directly relates to our desire to understand what it means to be an overcomer in Jesus Christ through his authority in us. Now, a lot of people have misconceptions about this, and and I'll tell you that uh, I believe that people can live their lives without ever uh, delving into this, without ever having an understanding of this. They can live their Christian lives and they can be saved and so on. But will we be who God called us to be when it's all said and done? That may be the question that needs to be answered here. You see, we're called ambassadors for the kingdom of God. When the scripture calls us an ambassador, it ought to really excite us when you understand what an ambassador does. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 is where you'll find that. But an ambassador is sent by a, a government or a governor to another uh, foreign land, and he is sent there to carry on the affairs of the one who sent him unless and until the one who sent him is there in that foreign land. 
you know, when we send an ambassador out from our, our nation here, if we send an ambassador to Canada, let's say, when that ambassador sets his foot on Canadian soil, probably at, at the airport there in Ottawa, Ontario, well, at that point in time, he has, if you will, the say of or control of the affairs of the government who sent him unless and until the head of the government who sent him is there in Canada. Well, the same thing is true for us. You see, we've been given great authority. We need to understand it and not misuse it and not underuse it. We need to use the authority God gave us, and we need to recognize that until Jesus comes and sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, guess who he has left in charge, so to speak? And we better be people who are underneath his covering and listening to his Holy Spirit as we're being led by the word of God and led by his spirit to carry out the affairs of the kingdom of God here on earth. We are not going to bring the kingdom to earth in this time period. And that's a misconception I think a lot of people who teach on spiritual warfare have. But we are to be the people who are representing the kingdom of God while we have this opportunity. Besides being an ambassador, we're also called a conqueror. In fact, we're called more than conquerors in Romans chapter 8. More than conquerors. So, you know, Jesus didn't send us here to be kind of conquerors some of the time. He didn't die on a cross that we could be just kind of conquerors whenever it was convenient. 1 John 3, 8 tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And did you know that that particular work is underway right now? It is a done deal, the way it's going to work out, but it's still in process right now. Uh, when people try to tell me that we're actually living out beyond the millennium right now, and didn't I know that, I'll say, gee, things really didn't work out the way I believe God wanted them to work out. If this is what it means to live in a wonderful, perfected society, we've got problems, don't we? And I've heard that from others. Uh, you know, we talk about eschatology and the timing of eschatology and so on, and you hear that from people and just wonder where they're coming from. Well, Luke 10, Jesus, uh, here he gives us authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and all the power of the enemy, but do we really believe it? Do we take that authority? Maybe we see ourselves as, as Satan wants to, us to see ourselves. Maybe we see ourselves as um, insufficient or less than what God has actually made us to be. But when we look at the Bible, the Bible says things about us, about us being more than conquerors and being an ambassador and all those things. When you begin to recognize that that's who we are in Christ and only because of him, not because we're so spiritual, not because we're so special, but only because of him. When you begin to see it like that, then I believe things will change in our own lives the way we view these things. Now, there are people who teach dominionism and kingdom now theology, and that would be the idea that we're going to buy our goodness, uh, we're going to eradicate evil and bring Jesus to earth in the process of all that. Uh, I, I don't believe that in any way, shape, or form. I teach against dominionism and kingdom now. In fact, next weekend, our program will be one hour with Ron Rhodes, Jan and, and myself and Ron Rhodes. Uh, we have an hour uh, on air next weekend about kingdom now and about the problems in it and why we don't believe it and, and trying to give a, a correct perspective from the scripture. I want to know, how did spiritual warfare become associated with the kingdom now and dominionism? And I, I think I've got this figured out from reading some of the materials from people who believe this kind of thing. But a lot of people, they, they have these misconceptions. They might be wondering, you know, how did, this, how did this happen? How did spiritual warfare and dominionism get hooked together? And again, dominionism is the idea that we eradicate evil and that somehow brings Jesus back. 
Where did people learn that? I want to know. Well, probably from a dominionist teacher or from somebody who has lumped spiritual warfare and dominionism as one thing together, who are maybe exposing uh, the truth about it, but they've lumped it all together. Well, you know, how did we get to the place where we're seeing a captive be set free? And do we all agree that that's one of the main principles of the Christian church? That we've been sent here to see captives set free? Do you know Jesus taught the disciples seven times? He said, preach, preach the gospel, pray for the sick, and cast out devils. Preach the gospel, pray for the sick, and cast out devils. Seven times you see those three things capsulated together. In Jesus' teaching, in his instruction to the disciples, and then, of course, they went out and did it. But how did we get from seeing a captive set free to then possessing the entire world just because we had that one passage where Jesus says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? You know, that's going to happen, but only when he comes and he sets up his earthly kingdom. As long as Satan is loose on the planet, as long as sin is, is loose on the planet, that's not going to happen. The biblical New Testament teaching of setting captives free has somehow been extrapolated out to imply an unbiblical teaching of cleansing the planet of evil, which only Jesus will do, but he will do eventually, and ignores correct eschatology. If you believe that somehow we're going to to take over the whole planet, You've got to, I'll take the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Ezekiel, Zechariah, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just take all that out of the Bible, if that's the way you think. But you know, there are a lot of people in the Christian world today that believe those things. There may be more people who believe in kingdom now, only because it's being taught from the pulpit in churches than who believe correct eschatology and, and, a, and a view of the millennium, the rapture, the tribulation, etc. That God has given us clearly in his word. <clears throat> You're going to have to pardon me this morning, folks. I've had the crud for seven weeks. Some of you understand. I've been talking to Mary. She's had it for quite a while here, too. But uh, seven weeks this has gone on. So I'm trying to get my voice back, and I can hear it already being... Uh, you know, I've got to drive to Milwaukee and fly to Seattle. My gracious, I've got more to do. At any rate, Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight. He tells him this over and over, fight the good fight, fight the good fight. Paul denotes that by completing the race of faith, and by doing this, it's something we do as we engage the enemy by actually putting up a resistance. So I believe the scripture clearly teaches that in our time frame, where we are today, in this age, in the church age, there is a war, there's an enemy, there's a battle, and there's one trying to deter us from the prize that we're to be uh, looking at and going forward to. Now, I won't take a long time to unpack this, but 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I think, is a very important passage when you talk about spiritual warfare. Just uh, let's read through it, and then I won't do very much commentating here. But Paul says here, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Well, that's the King James Version, and um, you kind of look at that and go, what in the world is he trying to say there? What he's really trying trying to say here is, I don't want to come there and have to get on you guys because you're acting just like the world and thinking like the world thinks. How many of you know we need to have a perspective, an understanding of how the world thinks around us? But I think some of us have so much of that that we have no perspective of the supernatural as well. 
we need to understand that we're supernatural beings, but we're living in a fallen planet. Paul says you're trying to solve the problems around you by only thinking in a natural way. That's what he's saying here in this second verse. The third verse of 2 Corinthians 10 says, but though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. In other words, we're in these bodies, but this isn't the end result. This isn't what we should be striving for. And then verse 4, the most famous passage, I think, in at least in 2 Corinthians 10 and possibly in the entire book, is the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The weapons we have are not of ourselves. It has nothing to do with our spirituality or good intentions, like I said, but it has to do only with uh, being soldiers underneath the command of God and walking in the way that he wants us to walk. Now, verse 5 is where I've gone to. This is where I really want to get at. Uh, by reading those first three verses. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Another version of this same passage says this, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it to be into Christ. So arguments, pretensions, and thoughts... I believe what Paul's really saying here is you have to get your thinking lined up with the word of God. Not with some conception you might have, not with some maybe bad teaching you once received, but we need to change our minds and get an agreement with God and get our, our minds lined up with what his word says. I believe the biggest stumbling block for us to be victors in Jesus Christ is right between our, our ears and right behind our eyes. It's the way we think. So we need to get biblical thinking going, don't we? We need to have biblical thinking in our lives. We need to think biblically in the way we conduct ourselves in the world, in every arena, not just in the arena of spiritual warfare. He's really saying here the standards of the world cannot defeat the enemy. He's making a carte blanche statement that we wage war, and my question would be, well, do we? He says here that it's God's power that wins the war and not ours, that we need to change our minds and get in agreement with God. Or remember, this is not optional. It's for everybody who is of the faith. Uh, Being um, a winner, being in spiritual warfare, there's no conscious objectors to that. It's completely, uh, I believe, something that that God has given us that, that we are to do. Now, the first weapon I want to mention of the seven, I've just given you my introduction. I hope you understand that, okay? But the first weapon of these seven, without it, there wouldn't be any victory. Without it, we'd be finding the nearest Jewish synagogue on Saturday morning. We'd be carrying out the 613 laws of the Old Testament. We would not be uh, underneath the, the, uh, the cross of Jesus Christ because that is really the first weapon. The very first weapon in spiritual warfare is what happened at the cross with the spilling of Jesus' blood. The old-time Baptist used to say, I plead the blood. I plead the blood. I began to hear that once I got saved, and it was a a statement or a phrase I'd never heard before. I didn't understand what it meant. I had to dig into it and find out and ask questions. And when I began to realize what it meant is that they're really just, they're extolling the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. They're extolling what happened at the cross, the freedom. I believe when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, that was the demarcation line between victory and defeat, between truth and error, and between life everlasting with God and, of course, life without God, which is something we don't even want to fathom. There are many things that uh, we see that the scripture talks about 
with the blood. Leviticus 17.11 tells us that there's life in the blood. I hope you understand that, that. The life of Jesus Christ was in his blood, his sacrifice for us. And he has extended that life to everyone who would believe and confess him as Lord and Savior and would receive his truth into their life. Hebrews tells us that the blood cleanses us. Matthew in Ephesians says the blood forgives us. Romans 5 says it justifies us. Colossians and Hebrews says the blood redeems. First, or, uh, Colossians chapter 1, brings, it brings peace. 1 John chapter 1, the blood purifies. Revelation 1, 5, the blood frees us. Revelation 5, 9, the blood purchases us. And if we look into to Exodus chapter 12, you see the protection of the blood. Now, in the DVD, and especially in the book, I, I go into great depth here about uh, Exodus chapter 12, which is an Old Testament type and shadow of the freedom of the cross, which is up in the New Testament. It's looking forward to it without really an understanding of the cross, but it's the same principle at work. And here in the Old Testament, as the Israelites were trying to flee out of Egypt, uh, it says here that God gave them the instruction to take of the blood, that would be the blood of a spotless lamb put in a basin, and each household, they were to strike the side post and the upper door post of the house with the blood. Uh, they were to put the blood physically on the door post of the house. So that when the death angel would fly over, he would not have the ability to be able to kill in that house. Well, what happened when we got saved was that blood was sprinkled upon our hearts. Jesus, that blood, the blood of Christ came upon us, if you will, at that point in time. You see, and we're forgiven for our sins because of his once and for all perfect sacrifice for us. The blood of Jesus Christ has, has brought that to us. Back in Exodus, they were freed and they were protected. Well, we're freed and protected the same with Jesus here in our time with him. The blood is awesome in power, but it's our responsibility to activate its usefulness. Now, what does that mean? Well, everybody in the world could benefit from the redemption of Jesus Christ. He went to the cross and died for everyone's sins. But only those who come to him and accepted him will have the benefit of it. The rest will pay for their own lives and own sins. See, that redemption was worldwide universal for all. But as I taught when I was here one time, universalism isn't what Christianity teaches. The redemption is different than the salvation that we understand. And people, I think, misconstrue that because the dictionary definition of redemption uses the word salvation to define redemption, and salvation is, def is also defined by the word redemption. But biblically, the redemption went forward, and now if we'll accept his love for us, accept him as Savior, and uh, be free of our sins, be born again, then, then we're going to be free and that redemption will then be, of course, activated in our life through salvation. I'll give you a great example here. Redemption is freely given to all. I mean, it's the best way to say it in, in one, one uh, slide. But salvation only comes when we act. Thank God that the Israelites acted. What if they would have decided to debate whether they should put uh, a, a lamb to death and then put his blood on the doorpost of the house? What if there had been debate? Well, there had been death in that house, wherever that, that wasn't followed. So we need to follow God's prescription and do it God's way, not just the way we think it might, might should be. We do it his way. 
So the blood must be applied according to this teaching. Uh, It is a weapon of war. It's certainly a weapon that frees us and protects us as if we were in a war. You must stay obediently in Jesus Christ for the blood to have full effect. I think we see that in Exodus 12. If we take that into the New Testament, we understand that we bring these these types and shadows forward and we have then complete understanding or much better understanding anyway of how they play out. Another passage that deals with this is Psalm 51. Psalm 51 in verse 7 is David, David's famous repentance psalm is Psalm 51. And verse 7 says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Well, David knew that hyssop was used in ceremonial cleansing back in the Israelites' day. But he also knew that the hyssop itself could not cleanse him from his problems. It was what the hyssop was dipped in that could cleanse him from his problems. Because the Israelites back there in Exodus 12 were to take the hyssop stalk and dip it in the blood of the lamb and then put it on the doorpost and the side posts of the house. And so we see the hyssop being used there in the Exodus. We see the hyssop being employed here in David's famous repentance psalm. And the question then would be to us, how do we apply the blood today? What is our hyssop? How do we apply that blood? And maybe I'd point this out as well. The sponge of vinegar held up to Jesus' lips on the cross was held up there on a hyssop stalk. So we see from Exodus to David to, to Jesus on the cross that, that that one plant that's native to the Holy Land, a little bush that's a foot or two high at most, the hyssop, was used. That's the prescription God laid out there. So what is the hyssop for us? Do we go and, 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 and cut down that plant? No, no. And let's never, never forget what Jesus said there on the cross. The next thing he says after that, the sponge of, of vinegar was held up to his lips and he refused it. He said, it is finished. And of course, the next thing Satan said was, I am finished. Because that was the spot where he knew he'd been defeated. Now his defeat is continuing to work out. And God is continuing to bring rectification to to the fallenness of this planet. It's not happened yet. We're in that process right now. But Satan knew that at that point he'd lost. That he had lost because God had sent his son and his son had died on that cross. So to answer the question I ask, what is the hyssop for us today? It is the ability we have to proclaim the truth of the cross to a lost and dying world. And that's something we are all called to do, to allow our lips to be instruments that God would use as we proclaim his truth in this world. That proclamation is something we've got to carry on with. It's what we've been left here to do. It's the reason we're here. It's the reason we're taking up space at at 98.6 degrees. I hope you understand that's why you're here, to be a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you say, well, you know, I like coming to church. It's a nice, safe place to be with people that I can trust more than I can trust the people in the world, and I've made friends there, but it's just not about us coming together having a nice, safe place of of worship. It's about us coming together to be able to be uh, encouraging each other to go on out back into the world and preaching the gospel and praying for those who are infirmed and believing God for deliverance for the captives and doing what the church is called to do. You know, most of us in evangelicalism, we, we try to preach the gospel. We try to be a witness. But when it comes to praying for the sick, we don't have a whole lot of faith to believe it can happen. Some of us believe that God doesn't heal people anymore. I don't know where we got that idea. 
And, and then some of us, when it comes to the demonic, well, that's set apart for just people in so-called deliverance ministries today. Do you know there weren't any deliverance ministries in the first century because the whole church was involved in it? It was a common practice in the church because we didn't want people to be infested or, or uh, uh, oppressed and so on of, of demonic power. And so they were involved with it. We don't do that today. We'd be uh, afraid in some church settings anyway. They'd be afraid that, that uh, the word would get around that weird things were happening in church. I'll tell you what, if weird things means people are being set free and the demonic are being put in their place, which is out of people's bodies and lives, then they can call us weird, amen? Let them call us weird. And I, I think that... Uh, uh, a lot of you, when you read the scripture, you see that, and you think, well, I don't see this going on in church today, and I think we need to be the people who are ready. I, I don't go looking for it, but we ought to be ready when it comes our direction. That's the point. And we ought to understand it's part of the Christian life. But this principle, second principle, is to speak the principles of God's word as sharp and powerful two-edged sword. And we look at this futuristic passage and get us a little more understanding of this particular idea of, of, the, of the principle of speaking the truth of God's word of the cross. Revelation 12, 11 is for these futuristic saints that are out there in the future. And it says, they, the saints, overcame him, the devil, how? By the blood of the lamb, and the word of their testimony. Notice it isn't just the blood, or it isn't just what they spoke, but when you get the two together, it's nitro meeting glycerin in the spirit realm. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Do not confuse this with positive confession, another problem that we've got out there. Do not confuse this with people who are out there just claiming something. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. And if we shy back from the clear teaching of Scripture about how, what we are to do to set captives free, then we'll miss the whole point if we, if we get nervous about it uh, maybe being taken by somebody else out of context in a, in a uh, wrong teaching, something like positive confession. No, what we speak is important. You know, Satan can't read my mind. I mean, I remember once a pastor told me many years ago, he said, well, Eric, I really don't think you ought to speak to the devil. I said, well, Bill, I, I really, I understand that, and I don't want to have an ongoing conversation with him. I, I mean, if, if, if ever I'm involved in a deliverance session, I believe demons should leave quickly and quietly. That's the way I think about it, and I don't want to carry on this long conversation with them. But if I don't proclaim to them who I am in Jesus Christ and proclaim the, the truth of the cross to them, how will they know what I know? Unless they see me act or hear me speak, they don't know what I'm thinking. Satan cannot read our minds. There's a chapter in the book on that. Satan cannot read your mind. He doesn't have those attributes. Only God has those attributes. Only God understands that. Only God knows what the future holds. Only God knows what we're thinking or what we know. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And it says here in verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren, that is Satan, is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Those are the people that I want to be right there. 
the people who understand the truth of the word of God, the power of the cross, and proclaim it wherever and whenever it's apropos. Our words must line up with God's word. We need to speak the principles of God. I've already addressed the whole uh, pleading the blood thing. It means just to apply the authority that God has given you through the power of the cross, appropriate what he's given you, speak into the situations, working in the situations, walking in the situations, praying in the situations, being who God has called us to be in every and any situation. And again, why do we do this? Because the Lord himself dealt with Satan through the power of the tongue, didn't he? That's how Jesus did it. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written during the temptation in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan himself. And again, Satan doesn't know our thoughts. Weapon number three. Weapon number three. Whole reams have been written about prayer. It's something I think we need to to understand and we need to read about it. We need need to get others' perspectives on And I'm not going to try to teach on prayer, but I'll tell you, without an ongoing, active, daily prayer life, is there any real proof that we're a member of the family of God, that we're saved, that we're born again? I don't think so. I think prayer is really the, it it really is the spot where the rubber meets the road. As we speak to God and he speaks to us and he speaks to us through his word. No, prayer is is really a, a prayer. It's a tool in spiritual warfare. It is a weapon in spiritual warfare as we get in line, if you will, with what God is saying through his word. Weapon number four. This is the only one of these seven things that I've broken out into its own message, and I have a DVD on it actually at the table too, and it's called The Battle Cry of Praise. Praise is a weapon of spiritual warfare. Uh, I can imagine how torturous it is for demons when Christians are singing, there's power, there's power, there's wondrous work and power in the blood. And uh, I, I know this as a truth in my own life, as well as from the scripture, and there's way more to unpack without the time to do it this morning on this, but praise breaks the back of Satan's attack. Instead of immediately going into a concerned or even a worry state when something bad happens, our response should be to praise God that he has all the answers needed at this particular point in time, that he understands the situation, he knows from the beginning to the end the outcome, and he's in control. It is a wonderful thing to know that God is in control, and it's not, it's not us, and it's not others around us, be they evil, be they good, that God is in charge. Praise breaks the back of Satan's attack. It's a hard thing in our human experience to remember to worship God in the midst of, the, of, of, uh, of wrong circumstances, evil circumstances. But it's a reaction we need, I believe, to train ourselves to do. Praise and worship releases God's comfort, his healing, and his deliverance in situations, and it releases his strength and power against the enemy. You know, God's the one that wins the battles. We just have to be obedient to follow along with him and do as his word says. It's amazing what will happen if we'll do that. Uh, worship isn't something that happens when the band comes up on Sunday morning. Worship should be something we're always involved with. It doesn't even take music to be a worshiper, does it? It's a decision we make when we wake up. Sometimes when I travel like I have been here the last few days and you, you, uh, you wake up and you, you have to take a second to remember what the hotel room looks like so you don't stumble as you get out of bed or even what, what city you're in, 
When, when you go through that days like that, maybe, maybe you really don't feel like being a worshiper at, at 5.30 in the morning. But it's amazing as you make the decision to worship God, how it comes back and you continue to make that a, a habit in your life and you make progress in this area. Worship, as we all know, is the gateway to God's throne. When, when Jesus taught us how to pray, he began the great Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount with praise. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He begins it with praise. And how does he end it? He ends it with praise too. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. He ends and begins that prayer with praise. That should tell us something as we enter into God's presence with praise and as we back away from God's presence, out of his presence with praise. Our dedication to worship God, regardless of our feelings, our circumstances, and our problems, should be unchanged. And in times of praise, or in times of trouble, as I said, our response, if we'll make it praise, will be amazing what God will do in our hearts, the peace he will bring in the midst of it. You know, and we'll really have to make the decision, are we going to worry or are we going to worship when bad stuff goes on? I've never seen anybody honestly worshiping God and worrying at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive actions. And if we'll transpose the things Satan wants us to do, which is worry, with worship, it'll be amazing to us what will take place. And I tell you, I have personal testimonies about this. I was at uh, uh, Jan Markell's conference back before I was a co-host with her back six, seven years ago, and uh, the author and speaker, Gary Ka, was one of the, um, was one of the speakers that year. And uh, somebody asked Gary how he could, how he could um, uh, research all this heavy material that he researches, how he could do that. And uh, Gary had the mic, and he answered. He said, it's only through worship. He said, I've learned to be a worshiper. Uh, worship is an antidote, a great antidote against Satan's evil and against any fear that might come up. It's amazing how, how it, it works. And he began to say this. I couldn't wait to get the mic next. And I was able to say, I believe exactly what Gary does. I can say in my own life that the only way we, we've been able to write books on the music industry, which is pretty dark, and, uh, and on, the, on the world of the occult itself, was that we became worshipers in the process. We, we learned to worship God and understand that worship is a tool, a tool of spiritual warfare against the enemy. Now, praise defeats worry and praise brings joy and it confuses the enemy's camp. And I'll give you one passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the story of Jehoshaphat as he and the Israelites are facing three pagan tribes. They're well over outnumbered and, and outmanned. And what happens is Jehoshaphat gets a word that comes to him through a prophet. They understand what, what, is, uh, what, is, what, their, what the vision must be, what they've got to do, in other words. And what they do is Jehoshaphat sends the musicians out at the head of the army that next morning as they went out into battle. Some people have hypothesized the reason he did that is because the musicians weren't very good and he wanted to get rid of them first. But that's not it. They went out worshiping God, and as they did, it sent confusion into the enemy's camp. Now, we look at that story that happened here on this planet, and then we can take that understanding and understand that's what's going on in the spirit realm. As we worship God, confusion is being sent into the enemy's camp. And I can tell you from personal experience, that's, that's a truth that happens. When we begin to employ it, you'll be able to say the same thing. So praise is a weapon of spiritual warfare. And just that one passage in Second Chronicles, if you go back and read that, that's a beginning point for you. Or get the other DVD of the Battle Cry of Praise out there. Okay, weapon number five. 
Imagine how many people have read, written about and spoken about and given understanding of what it means, what the name of Jesus means. So the name of Jesus, acting in and, and operating under the authority of his name, walking in the power that he gives us in the name of Jesus, operating in the name of Jesus, knowing your authority and ability as a conquering ambassador is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God now for us here on earth. He's going to come and bring perfect peace to this planet. Until then, there's going to be trouble. It's going to get darker and darker and darker. And I believe this is the time when we need to understand what our role is and the victory that he's won for us. Weapon number six, it is simply living the Christian lifestyle, which is exemplified uh, in the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, his feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, evangelism, going out and taking the gospel out, the shield of faith, and then the only, only offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so the armor of God, put on the armor of God to make your stand against Satan. Put, armor, put on the armor of God to make your stand in, in an evil day. I believe that there's ever a time we need to be putting on the armor. In other words, walking the Christian walk and understanding the authority of that walk and the understanding the reason that we are here and what we are to be doing, it is today. I'm quickly going to give you a, a bonus weapon, too. I have a, about five minutes here, and I want to give you this one bonus weapon, so you're going to have eight of them all together. And this bonus weapon will hold true for all of us right here, that giving is a weapon of spiritual warfare. Giving is a weapon of spiritual warfare. Nobody prompted me to say this either. When we become cheerful givers, it's amazing what happens in our lives. You know, Satan does not want us to be giving to the work of Jesus Christ in the earth. He doesn't want us to, to be giving. He wants to strangle that and cut it off. Uh, George Barna and others have brought up the fact that, that Christians in America today, the average Christian only gives 3% to all things he gives to, including his church. Um, I don't want to be legalistic with you about the 10% tithe, and I believe you should, you should do exactly what uh, God calls you to do. So if you want to give 20 or 30 or 40 or 50%, that's a good idea. You know, I think we ought to go that direction, don't you? We ought to be more than, give, uh, more than abundant givers. We ought to go forward with it rather than backwards, especially in a day like today. This day where we're watching the end of the end days be formulated. Giving is an important part of this. It frees us from satanic curses. It brings God's bountiful blessings. Cheerful giving brings joy. It strengthens the work of God, and it weakens Satan's kingdom. That, those are all good things. Those are all good things, and not the time this morning to get into Malachi chapter 3, but I hope that you'll uh, just write this down. Remember what it says here in verse 9, you're cursed with the curse. And why is that? Because we have robbed God. Let's not be people who are robbing God. Let's be doing as he is saying for us to do. And now weapon number seven, it could be eight in your notes, but weapon seven is something you get free without any effort. Because if you're a person who understands what happened at the cross and you're proclaiming that to a lost and dying world in the name of Jesus and you're a worshiper and you understand what his word says and you're living in the Christian life and you're a, a giver and giving of yourself as well as of any of your resources, money, etc., then a faith-filled attitude of victory is what's going to follow you. A faith-filled attitude of victory. And that is the single thing that people will see 
and they'll wonder, why are you like you are? I want to know more. I believe one of the greatest witnessing tools is when we walk with the a correct, humble attitude of victory, understanding the one who has won the war for us already. Even though we're still engaged in battles, the war and the outcome has already been decided. He won it for us at the cross. When we walk in that way, it's amazing what will happen. And remember, as I said earlier, as we began, it's all because we were obedient to him, it's because we depended on his word, and it's because we were led by his spirit. It's not about us. It's all about him. Our mission to wage effective spiritual warfare is about seeing captives set free. And how we respond to that mission, what we say and what we do in response to it. And, you know, by the amount of time we give to this, by by the way we approach it, by preparing our hearts and minds to be who he wants us to be, uh, that's that's really going to say to God whether we really want to be his workmen at this point in time. This last slide says, through our diligence in spiritual warfare, we reap the benefits of obedience to God, but more so the natural result of warfare is the lost are drawn to the cross. And isn't that what it's all about, as I've said continually in this message? You see, this might be a message about spiritual warfare, but it's really an encouragement to the church to be the evangelist we've been called to be. This is the time, and this is the hour. We have a lost and dying world out there. We have people who are dying even at this moment without Jesus Christ. And what's the antidote? It's us going to them with the gospel. That is the only thing that can save them. Father, I thank you and I praise you, Lord. And I ask, oh God, that there's anyone here today who doesn't know of that gospel. If there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, anyone here who has not experienced the grace and mercy and forgiveness that salvation brings. I pray, Lord, this would be their day to simply say, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and live your life in me. I surrender my life to you. I recognize I'm a sinner and you're a savior and I can't save myself. I understand that the wages of my sin would bring death, but now instead I turn to you for eternal life. If you pray a prayer like that or you know you need to, I pray that you will come to one of us in the the building this morning, turn to another Christian here, talk with them, come to me. Whoever you speak to, let somebody know if that's you. If you're watching by the internet, the same thing, that you would turn to someone and let them know that you've confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. Maybe you're saying, I'm coming back to you, Lord. I've been far away and I've lived a way that you don't want me to live and I've been something you don't want me to be and I'm coming back today. If that's you, tell somebody that you're starting your walk with Christ again today and you're going to be serious about it. You're going to walk on with him today. If that's you, let somebody know. Father, for the rest of us, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us remember these principles at just the right time, that we will train ourselves as a soldier gets trained before he's sent into warfare. Help us be trained to be ready when the opportunities to preach your word and to see captives set free are given to us. Help us be good with this, Lord. Help us be good with it only because we know we can depend on you to bring the results. And we give you the praise and give you the glory this morning in Jesus' name, amen.